Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art, the podcast that sits at that intersection somewhere between art and technology. I'm Gabe BC, your host. You can always follow us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter, or send me an email to gabe at thestateoftheart.org uh, with any questions or comments. I hope you're doing okay out there uh, during the coronavirus outbreak. I've been spending a lot of time indoors, as I hope you are too. Uh, so far, things have been all right. I'm in New York City, which is sort of the epicenter here of uh, Corona. Uh, you see people on the street, but not nearly as much as you used to. And I think that's for the best. We can all agree on that. But I'm doing a lot of podcasting now. So that's pretty exciting. Still teaching classes in the Zoom. I'm sure you've experienced Zoom now. I never used to Zoom, but now I'm Zooming all the time. Just people as potatoes and uh, Cheetos and all sorts of other things. Uh, most of my students turn into llamas now, so that's a challenge, trying to teach to a room full of llamas. Uh, but I'm getting through it. I think we're all hopefully getting through it, and I hope uh, your family is safe and, um, and you're healthy. And if you are dealing with a lot of other stuff right now, that's understandable, and don't feel like you need to make artwork. That's my other big message for everybody. Uh, now is not necessarily the time to make your masterpiece. You know, If it is, that's great. If not, take some time off for yourself. That's what I'm doing. I'm just catching up on uh, the first season of Netflix. So uh, today's episode is really great. We have Ross Goodwin. I've known him for quite a while now. He does all sorts of interesting work with poetry, language. He builds cameras that take photos of the world and then transcribes them into poetry. We're going to talk about how you create uh, sort of new compositions in art from remixed old poems, sci-fi movies, all sorts of things. We talk about what it's like to make art in the age of AI and neural networks. So if you're interested in any of those topics, this is a good one for you. Uh, without much further ado, let's start off the show. Ross, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Uh, so let's start at the beginning here. Uh, how did you get interested in making work in the first place? Uh, how do you describe the work you make now? Uh, well, let's get kind of into your backstory to start. Yeah, sure. Um, how did I get into making this kind of work to begin with? Um, math and creative writing have always been competing interests for me, you know, since I was a kid. Uh, I, I, when I went to college at MIT, I thought I wanted to study physics initially. I, if I had gotten into Stanford or Harvard, I might have gone straight into English lit or creative writing even. But because I got an MIT, I, I figured I'd do something technical. So, so physics seemed right. And I did that for a year and a half. And then, you know, I got to see in a lab uh, over the summer after my freshman year what physicists actually do. And I, I spent the whole summer essentially twisting wire into loops to make sensors for what's called a tokamak uh, or a, a toroidal chamber where we study the interactions of plasmas. And it should have been really interesting because the, the physics was interesting. Yeah, that sounds pretty. It sounds pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, but the but the but the 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 labor that summer was entirely entirely consisted of uh, gluing and 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 twisting very very thin wire around nails to make these grids that could go into the chamber. And there was really no other way to do it than doing it by hand. I, I also learned that most physicists don't get their own lab until they're about. 50, 60 years old. And until then, you're essentially working on someone else's projects. Um, I wanted to make my own projects. I, I've always liked working on self-generated ideas. So that didn't seem like the right path for me once I learned that. And despite being really interested in it mathematically, um, 
you know, I, I was starting to get more interested in uh, policy after talking a lot with Noam Chomsky, who I was working for uh, at the time, started working for him my sophomore year uh, and worked for him for two years as a research assistant uh, on a project related to foreign policy rhetoric. Hmm. And it was really fascinating. Um, I, I decided from that that I wanted to try being a political speechwriter, since that seemed like the mysterious the source of power for a lot of, you know, the words that I was reading about. Uh, and it just seemed like that would be an interesting starting point for whatever I might want to do next. Um, so you abandoned physics at this point and we're going to work in yeah. political speech writing. But I studied economics because I didn't want to lose the quantitative aspects of my education entirely, uh, which maybe was a mistake. If I could do it again, I probably would have studied computer science. Uh, but the machine learning uh, that I practice now uses a lot of statistics. And that's what I learned about in that program. So I, I guess I'm so grateful for that. Was there um, was there any yeah. overlap? I'm curious. Was there any overlap between physics mm -hmm. and creative writing and e economics to you? Do you see any sort of uh, combination <laughs> of these in your work now? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a combination of my work now. Um, you know, uh, I, I I guess in the sense that you know, economics involves statistics. I'm applying statistical techniques to writing, so that connection to me seems pretty clear. Um, physics, uh, you know, despite not really distinctly being related to creative writing to me uh, is also about storytelling uh, or, you know, more or less determining how the world works at a fundamental level or how it came to be. Uh, and even those, even though those might not be fictional stories, they're still stories. Uh, the Big Bang is a story. It's an explanation for how everything got here and maybe what was before um, in some way. And I, I guess, you know, we make sense of the world through stories as humans. So to me, like every discipline is related to creative writing in that way. And so do you but describe yourself now as a, as a writer or an artist or, or somewhere days, in between? I, 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 somewhere in between. Um, you know, the joke I make with my friends and with, is, is that, you know, I'm really just still a writer and a photographer. I just use really fancy keyboards and weird cameras that I make myself. Um, but I guess, like, I'm a writer and a photographer who's trying to push the boundaries of those disciplines in, in different ways. Um, probably more writer than photographer. Photography is something I've always been interested in, but, um, you know, not something I've done professionally as much in a traditional way. Yeah, I, Writing, on the other hand. I'm yeah, pretty familiar ahead. with your, um, I know your project Word Camera, which is, I think, is a good project yeah. to encompass these both these ideas. Could you describe sure. for our listeners sort of how Word Camera works and what it looks like? Sure. Um, well, Word Camera is a, a camera that expressively narrates images captured in real time. Um, my favorite versions of it have been versions I've built inside of antique cameras with receipt printers on them that, uh, you know, essentially function as like text Polaroids. And hmm. it's always been a balance of like fitting the whole machine into a camera uh, you know, as opposed to like, you know, having something happen in the cloud. I really like these machines to be portable and to be also, uh, you know, sort of self, uh, you know, you, you could use one without Wi-Fi. I like that idea that it can, it's a self-contained device. Um, 
So yeah, it, it's, it, it works using different kinds of artificial neural networks that can recognize entities and images or outright caption them and then expand those initial fairly terse descriptions or sets of words into longer, more expressive uh, poetry or prose poetry. Um, the first version of it was pretty simple. On my end, I, I tied together a bunch of APIs, uh, the Clarify API, which was the first, um, I think the first publicly available image and the extraction API. So it would give you a set of nouns uh, when you put in an image. So it would generate, so it would be a, it would take a photo and then it would generate nouns from that image that it recognized in the photo? Yeah, correct. So, huh. you know, if you take a picture of this room, it would say like table, chair, uh, man, glasses. There's been a push against uh, using gender with these models lately because sure. they're not very, they're not very good at it. But until recently, they would, they would say man or woman. Um, yeah, I assume that's also incredibly problematic. I mean, who's, yeah, who's feeding it, it, these it, samples, right? It really is. And initially, I left that stuff in. And it wasn't until I think like 2016, I had a really good conversation with T. Uglo, who runs the Google Creative Lab in Australia. And, and, and she's like a trans activist and, and, and sort of brought that to my attention of like, you know, really, should this machine be um, identifying gender, especially if it does it inaccurately and even if it did it accurately is that even something that we want in in this kind of demonstration to me initially it was about like showing people the capabilities of a machine like this or lack thereof in some cases but you know that you know her experience with it was that it identified her as a, a woman with a beard and she found that like really fascinating you know as someone who's sort of uh i don't want to speak for her at all but, um, you know, she just she didn't find it offensive so much as she thought it was just interesting that it saw those qualities. And it to me, like, you know, that was a sign, though, that it, it really I, I needed to take that part away. Um, sometimes, you know, removing something or removing a capability can, can make an experience, you know, in this case, more accurate and richer. So I just, you know, changed man, woman to person, people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and to me, that, that did make a big difference in how people related to the output because they wouldn't be uh, distracted by it misidentifying or even properly identifying their gender. Um, so this camera, so you built this into the word camera itself and it's a, it's an old body of a camera. What, what kind of old camera is it that you use? I've used a few. Um, there's been probably like seven or eight at this point. Hmm. Um, you know, the one that was uh, publicly uh exhibited for the longest um and has been exhibited most is um a 1916 um uh it says you know it's funny i i haven't been able to figure out the brand of this camera but i picked it up in amsterdam a long time ago and it's just a little bellows camera and so uh, really old yeah. like yeah we're not talking like 60s camera we're talking no, 100 years old and, and the idea behind no no and, and then the one i've been working on more recently the bigger one uh, is is an eighteen eighty five like eight by ten camera. Wow, um, and and it's it's really gorgeous. I I I really um, think these these old devices are gorgeous, and there's a way to sort of give them a second life by doing this. The other thing that appeals to me about using old cameras is the suggestion that this device is not the the, the ultimate. Uh, you know, it's not the Canon five D Mark Four. It's it's the daguerreotype of, of, of this technology. It's the first iteration. 
and, and that's what I wanted to suggest. I also just find the history of photography fascinating, and I've drawn on that in a lot of my work. Um, I've I've got this sort of half-finished project I've been working on for a very long time involving antique stereo views. Hmm. Um, 3D photography is like almost as old as 2D photography. Right, yeah, Um, I've seen some of those. It almost mirrors the way we use VR in a way today. Um, Exactly, yeah. But I'm curious about Uh, the word camera. I'm curious about the output of the word camera. So you take a photo of someone or a situation and the output, it, it prints out words out, out of the camera? Yeah, correct. So um, I, I've done web versions of it as well and totally digital versions, but my favorite versions are the ones that it uses a thermal printer or a receipt printer uh, mounted on somewhere on the camera to uh, essentially create like a text Polaroid. That's the experience I was going for with it. And is it, does, um, it just, and, does it just label the things that are in the line of vision or does it actually sort of compose this into some sort of poem or uh, prose? I like to think that it it composes it into a poem or prose. It's it it definitely at times veers quite far away from what's happening in the image, and to me that's actually okay um, because this is not about like purely representing and describing the image. It's about uh, extrapolating and, and riffing on it, and um, you know there's a lot of creative writing exercises that humans do all the time that involve writing a short story or some flash fiction based on a photo. Um, you know, there's obviously the cliche expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. And when I put up word camera, a lot of people explicitly thanked me for not calling it like thousand words or you know, something like that. <laughs> right. Um, that so sense. like, yeah, it, it's, 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 um, but yeah, I like to think that it is, um, it's, but it does start with that description. There, there are other, projects like uh, Ryan Curious's Neural Storyteller that take a more technically sophisticated approach. Um, That project actually, it it also starts with very terse descriptions, but it uses this incredibly sophisticated um, thing called a skip thought vector to essentially translate the description into a paragraph in a particular style. Hmm. And that's, I think, really beautiful and amazing that it exists and works even a little bit. Um, it's not exactly what I was going for with my project, only because I was trying to sort of follow the first rule of rapid prototyping, which is you know to get to the experience as fast as possible. So to me, the, the simplest way was to just extend the you know nouns or later the, the little terse captions into longer sentences or longer lines or series of lines repetition is also really important in these structures i i think you know repetition is probably the most underrated you know poetic and uh linguistic device it, it's it's probably the most important even when we if we if we sort of deconstruct it and think about repetition not only as like explicitly repeating the same line but also as repeating themes or or following a, a point through. Um, it, it's really what creates cohesion between uh, multiple passages of, of a longer text. So repetition is just something we can't ignore. Um, Do you have examples? I'm really curious to hear some of the examples yeah, of yeah. how the, the camera would see a room or a person in a, in a space. Yeah, I can use the word camera to generate a poem. Um, Great. That sounds, and, uh, that sounds perfect. Yeah. Um, how is it going to generate? So is it 
how does it know what a poem is exactly? Like, <laughs> has it looked at other poems to create this uh, text, or is it basically? Uh, yeah. So, so it doesn't know what a poem is in any traditional sense. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's so the not the image uh, detection neural net, but the neural net that extends those descriptions. I trained on about forty five megabytes of modern poetry, which doesn't sound like a lot. It's like you know a high resolution photo. But that is actually a ton of text. It's, it's more text than you'll read in a year, even if you're a voracious reader. Um, it's more text than a lot of people read in their entire lives, actually. So you, so you um, kind of train it, you submit all these documents. Of, and it, are those poets selected by you? Or are you just kind of grabbing giant databases of poetry? I mean, what giant databases of poetry? <laughs> you don't have one of those in your house? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like, if you know about any, let me know. Yeah, uh, I assume there's but, some uh, in the Library of Congress or something. Don't we have a poetry database? So it's it's all really complicated, right? Because, like, you know, Google got in trouble or, you know, they might have gotten out of it. But it, it sort of the, the question of whether you can train on copyrighted work is an open legal question. Yeah, that's super ultimately. interesting to me. I mean, do you think about that with your work? Like, uh are there legal issues with you training on these poems that you found? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, you know, when when Oscar Sharp and I made Sunspring, which is another project we haven't talked about yet, um, in 2016, you know, uh, I had to get a really expensive lawyer to make sure that I owned it. Um, Oscar and I, Oscar later met this guy, Alex Fierst, who is a copyright law professor at Stanford Law School, who now gives us both pro bono advice. But um, when I sometimes I have to go to um, uh, this lawyer who my mom is a lawyer, so she she was able to get the friends and family rate at uh, 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 Perkins Coie in San Francisco. But I get to talk to their head of copyright law, and she actually gets to speak at law conferences about working with me. So, <laughs> that works um, out. <laughs> yeah. So so, but essentially, I mean, the, the the there isn't any case law about neural nets and fair usage. Um, there's a very strong argument to be made that anything I would be doing, regardless of this is fair use, but even beyond that, um, the, the way that she sort of the argument that she came up with after a lot of research, um, and this, I don't even, I mean, this was like research that she did is, is that, you know, it, the closest case law similarity is this case against turnitin.com which is a website that checks for plagiarism and that mm. schools can subscribe to. So they keep, obviously, a ton of copyrighted material in their databases because that's what they check the student papers against. But that's not also what they're selling you. They're selling you, um, uh, you know, the, the verification that a pla paper is, is not plagiarized. So it's what she would call an intermediary product, um, I guess, in, in the legal parlance not the final like product that's for sale or you know being given away or whatever yeah it seems uh, like your work would fall under fair use though just sort of that in the fact that it's a remix or reinterpretation yes, so there's that protection as well um but i've learned that like okay so for example oscar and i made a new movie last year um, the most recent one and we used gpt2 for the script and it makes a lot more sense than actually any of the other scripts we've made in the past and i'm excited for it to come out in a few months but at one point, we trained the script on, or we trained the, the neural net. I trained the neural net on, on action movies this time. And we got a lot of like Batman output. And some of it was really, <laughs> really amazing and good. And like, 
we wanted to originally do it like a Batman parody. Yeah, the new adventures even, of we, Batman. We even got we even got Seth Rogen interested in playing our like man bat, like or fake Batman. And then we found out that like the people who own the copyright for Batman will basically like chase you to the ends of the earth if you don't get their permission and use Batman in any way whatsoever uh, for any sort of perceived profit. So like, and, and even our pro bono lawyer, Alex Fierst was like advised against using any superhero because apparently you can get in trouble for using superheroes in your art um, pretty easily, actually. Um, so I really think it depends on who holds like uh, the copyright and how many, how many resources they have at their disposal and how litigious they are and, and sort of, uh, aggressive about going after people that's how um, it always is though right it's the, yeah, the big guy's gonna is. go after the small guy uh yeah yeah exactly and i want to talk about sunspring too but let's can we check in on our poetry is is it uh ready to be read <laughs> um oh um so no because uh i i, I i'm not I'm, i my computer's in the other room i can go make the git rewind real quick if you want to take a quick break um, or I can write a poem from a title and a keyword. That endpoint is definitely working. Oh, let's do that. Um, so let's let's write okay. a poem from a title and a keyword. Can I give you a, a title for a poem? Absolutely. I okay, let's call more. it uh, Where the Wind Blows. <laughs> I'll do something okay. very uh, generic here. Amazing. Uh, all uh, capital, like what's the capitalization scheme? Uh, let's make it like matter. all caps. Like I'm yelling Where the Wind Blows. Amazing. Okay. Sometimes that has an interesting effect. Like... Uh, and okay, then, and then what's the keyword? And the keyword is going to be, um, uh, let's say, cheese. Oh, my God. Okay. Let's see here. Um, and you want like a short, medium, Yeah, long? let's do a short. Let's do a really short one that you can read here on the air. Perfect. Okay. So it's actually, yeah, it's going to make, um, this, is, this is also very, you know, it's actually reasonably fast given what it's doing. So what, what is it doing right now? Uh, it's done already. Um, it's uh, so it's it's sending um, essentially. I you know when I trained this model that writes poetry, I had uh, like I said like forty or five megabytes of modern poetry, and um, the open source uh, GPT two model that was trained on like the whole internet by OpenAI, which is Elon Musk's tech startup uh, that you know open sourced these uh, GPT two. Uh, neural network models for generating text last year. Um, and the, you can basically use these models that are pre-trained as like a starting point for anything. Um, it's sort of like having a block of clay and you can shape that block of clay in any form you want. If you swap out the, you know, uh, <laughs> trillion web pages or whatever that this was trained on for 40 megabytes of poetry and then retrain it on that. Okay. Um, it's called, that's, a, that's called fine tuning. So um, it's it's and the other thing is once you've done that you actually can't get back to the block of clay which is interesting like it, it, the neural net sort of forgets its original education in favor of the new one you've given it um, oh, so we can never figure out where the wind blows where where it came from exactly right well yeah I mean it, it can figure out um, you know it, it can't write like um, news articles anymore for mm. example like the the base model would have been able to. Um, okay. So here's the first one that I'm just reading arbitrarily. It, it made eight, just so you know. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> so where the wind blows sweet and blue, where the wind makes one a singer. If you forget the sun, forgetting the sea, you might 
and never wonder. So I say to these customs soldiers who wonder why the stone yard thrives, where the wind blows sweet and blue, where the wind makes one a singer, the stone yard for my song. Yet Paquita, I would fain, where the wind blows sweet and blue, where the wind makes one a singer. Yeah, it's like so-so. Let me find, let me see if that's a good one. <laughs> I like one it. Uh, Wait, but how did it? Yeah, it didn't incorporate the cheese into the uh, poem, though, in any way. No, but it really, it really grabbed onto where the wind blows. It did. And the thing is that if you if you don't make the word related um, to the title in an obvious way, it 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 sometimes just like forgets about it. The title sort of one of those two things will overpower the other. Um, that's the that way sense, that it's, it's interesting to think about the the psychology behind it, how, how it works, how it puts yeah. the words together. I'm curious. Well, I'll sort of explain. Yeah, no, go ahead. I'm I can, curious I can sort about of explain that. Yeah, I'm curious about maybe we can talk about it as it pertains to Sunspring because Sunspring yeah, you sure. generated a whole screenplay in this in this manner. Although you trained it on was it action movies or science fiction uh, movies? Sunspring was science fiction movies. Yeah, all science fiction movies. And so you fed it how many science fiction movies, and then it, it spit out a number of scripts that you chose from. Is that is that correct? It was like about 200 science fiction movie screenplays and about like six complete TV series. Uh, which was probably the bulk of the material, to be honest, because, you know, movie screenplays kind of pale in comparison to the length of an entire, like, season of a TV show and all those screenplays. Um, so I would say it was like a thousand scripts total of varying lengths that went in. And then um, it generated and, a short film. And, uh, like, what was the most surprising thing about generating this short film, like, that you learned that you never yeah, would have anticipated? So many, so many things. Probably the most surprising thing was the way the actors just readily imbued meaning into parts that were really um, not apparently meaningful or not apparently with objective meaning. The actors in the table read um, just sort of came up with this love triangle story and it sort of emerged organically as they were reading the script. Um, And it really taught me like what actors do um, because actors are doing that with human written scripts too. Like they're also like the ones who decide that this line actually comes off the way it does. And that's more, you can completely reverse the meaning of a line by how you deliver it uh, or, 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 or negate the writer's intended meaning um, entirely. And, you know, actors, uh, you know, they do a lot more than we imagine they do uh, to conjure, you know, meaning out of thin air. I also learned, I think, that, um, you know, imply or meaning is is more a product of perception than intent. Um, and that, that that's the lesson that really stuck with me, I think. Um, in what do you mean by that? I'm kind of curious. How, how would you yeah. explain that with a scene from Sunspring in some way? Sure. So, you know, um, it's hard to explain with a scene from Sunspring, but it's easy to explain, I think, with anything else almost, actually. <laughs> Um, which is that like, I can intend anything I want with artwork that I make, but ultimately it's the audience in my absence, uh, who will decide what it means. And Sunspring, I guess the parallel there is that like, there's so many versions of the screenplay in a way. There's the version that emerged from the printer that we think of as like Sunspring Prime. There's the version that the actors imagined when they were in the table read. There's the version that actually, you know, took place when it was enacted in front of cameras. But then there's the version that every viewer sees in their interpretation, which can differ quite a bit. 
uh, because there's no like objective interpretation of what's happening, uh, you know, or, or prescribed one in any way. Um, and that also parallels to me the way that like that happens maybe to a less um, significant extent with with anything. Um, the reaction to an artwork or to a novel, to any creative endeavor is going to diverge from the author's intent um, in some way, somewhere, no matter what. Even the simplest utterance um, when transcribed onto paper and, you know, uh, placed in a foreign location with someone who's never met you uh, can take on a totally different meaning. And it's surprising to me that we put so much responsibility for an artwork's meaning on the creator of that artwork. Um, when I guess it, it, it feels like the audience shares in that responsibility as well. Um, I mean, it makes sense because the creator of the artwork, um, they, well, if, if the audience understood what they were doing, they must have designed it in a way that enabled that. But the way of enabling that is, is, is not straightforward. And in my work, um, I, I've, I found, because I had this discussion the other day with somebody, I, I found that like, even if I have an intent, um, th the work can push someone in a number of directions toward or away the ideas I was intending them to consider. But it's really the actual confusion and the journey toward whatever destination that person is going toward with their interpretation that I find significant and interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're giving up control a lot of the time over your work too. I mean, there's these other yeah, systems yeah. that, and you're remixing pre-existing <laughs> systems and almost like, it almost fits into like ready-mades in a way, <laughs> I would say. It is, it, it is like ready-mades. It's um, a lot like ready-mades. And I'm, I'm curious with Sunspring, you're, you're training the, you know, you're training the script, obviously, on pre-existing scripts, but you're also training the actors then. It's something that you brought up just now. And how did it, how did they respond to working with a script that was generated entirely by a computer? I mean, they loved it. They actually loved it, um, you know, and, and that surprised me. I thought, you know, they were going to find it insulting or just, you know, but what's funny is, is Thomas Middleditch, who's, who stars in the film, uh, you know, he, he does improv Shakespeare for fun. Hmm. He's probably they best are. known for Silicon Valley, right? That's yeah, he, he, exactly. Yeah, best known for Silicon Valley. He's nothing like his character in real life, which is quite, which threw me quite a bit uh, the first time I met him in person. But the, yeah, he, he's an incredible actor. Um, his improvisational abilities are really, really incredible. And the the thing is that like, absent a, a human writer that has an intent or any intent, um, it actually gives a lot more control and um, a creativity to everyone else uh, who fills that vacuum in the writer's absence. Um, the set designer suddenly gets to interpret abstract instructions um, and creativity a lot of times grows on constraints, even right. really strict ones. So, I think it actually gave everyone on the production team um, a chance to shine in ways they might not have been able to otherwise, um, which is why, like, it's a shame that, you know, most of the discussion around Sunspring centers on Oscar and myself, when really, like, I, I wish more people talked to, like, uh, Tiger and Andrew, the musicians, and, like, the the costume designer, whose, whose name's escaping me, and all the people who sort of filled in those gaps with, with their creativity, the sum of that 
um, well, the total was greater than the sum of its parts, I think, in many ways. Right. It becomes a collaborative and, art exercise if the actors get to make these choices. And if the, I mean, the actors are always making choices, but if they have to really interpret what this machine is saying, uh, or right. even add not a story right to it. Also, there's not like a right answer, even right. according to the director. Um, you know, the director might have some intuition about how a scene should go. But if an actor tries something and it works, um, you know, Oscar was probably likely to keep it or at least, you know, uh, see what else they could do. I, it's really it's, it was also really interesting. Watch, it's always really interesting watching Oscar work. Um, I never actually I still don't really know what a movie director does, but I have a much better idea after working with Oscar and just the way that he's able to draw performances from people is pretty incredible. Um, do you, you have know, a favorite clip we, or a favorite scene that was generated? Yeah. From this movie? Oh, oh, that was motivated by Oscar. Yeah, um, you mean like, yeah. So, 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 it's no game, which was the movie we made the following year with David Hasselhoff, and like a variety of neural network models that could do different voices. There was like a Shakespeare one, and like a Golden Age Hollywood one, and one that was just David Hasselhoff's TV shows, and um, one that I'm forgetting. And there was also a generative ballet dance in the in the film. Um, involves this really kind of emotional monologue from David Hasselhoff. It might be his best. I mean, like people I know have told me it's like the best acting they've ever seen him do, which is like kind of remarkable. But if you Oscar, you know, has, has talked about like how he got that performance out of him. And, you know, I think it was like, he said something like say it to your father or something like that. And just the idea to say that to someone, you know, to get an actor to like deliver a line as if they were delivering it to their, father who you know in this case i, I assume uh, hasselhoff had a complicated relationship with um it's a lot of manipulation and um you know not like unpleasant or um unconsensual manipulation but um it's it just takes a very clever sensibility to draw certain kinds of performances out of a specific actor you, it's, it's a very like person-to-person business you need to have a certain kind of personality and it's a lot of you know as oscar has said it's a lot of saying like yes and no to things right um really really quickly in rapid succession and being right every time hopefully do you ever get Um, do people ever accuse you of sort of taking their jobs (laughs) like are are photographers and and, you know writers angry at you like they're angry that you're generating these films and maybe one day they won't be needed to construct a film anymore i mean obviously i don't personally believe that is the case but um Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that is like by far the most common, like immediate reaction I get to from, from just arbitrary members of the public to my work is, oh, you know, now you're taking the poet's job too, I guess. Um, But like after I get to talk to that person, hopefully they come away with a different opinion because, you know, or, or if they've read something I've written, because it's really, the more I, I do this kind of work, the more it really is impossible to escape, to escape your own influence as an artist or writer over what you're making, even if it's separated from you by this layer of abstraction, which is, you know, the machine that you're working alongside. Um, I, I guess the other thing is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's augmentative, you know, technology is, is not a force of replacement so much as an augmentative one. Um, and you can argue that every augmentation is an amputation. That's a different discussion, I think, but fundamentally, uh, technology where it ever replaces someone it's helping someone else do a lot more than they were before Hmm. um and that's the part of it that gets overlooked often 
because we want to treat technology like an other, I think. Um, it's really all over the way we talk about it in public forums. You know, we think of it as this alien thing that's not human, that's like outside of us. But in reality, you know, technology is this really old story. It's, it's basically what separates us from our primate ancestors. Uh, you know, we use tools. We have short guts because we use cooking fires. Um, you know, technology is a part of a box. We've affected our biology over and over again with technology. So, you know, the idea of a cyborg being this concept for the distant future is also wrong. You know, we're, we're all cyborgs and we always have been. Um, and technology is not another. Um, it's an extension of us. And to the extent that it reflects good or bad parts of us, yeah, that's our responsibility. Um, but as it gets more sophisticated, the source might get more obscured. But the fact remains that it's all quite human. It's all quite human-centered. And thinking of it as an other, I think, is not only like wrong, it, it also could become dangerous as we move forward because um, it removes responsibility from the engineers who create it. You know, if I can just blame my AI for all those self-driving car crashes, then, you know, my engineer who coded the system is off the hook, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I really appreciate the human nature in your work. I mean, I, because you're working with machines and machine learning, but I find like even in projects like the one you just did with um, S. Devlin, the Feed the Lions project in mm -hmm. London, that you, it really connects to humans in a way that maybe some other work that's created with neural networks it doesn't. <laughs> I think that because yeah. you're using, you know, recognizable forms and factors like poetry, um, it makes it more human. Can you describe this? I'm just kind of curious how you describe Feed the Lines, this collaboration. Yeah, sure. So um, that was an absolute privilege to work on. Uh, Please Feed the Lions, uh, which was Ez Devlin's vision. And, you know, Ez Devlin is an incredible creative thinker, artist, um, set designer, uh, she does the stage sets for like Kanye West and Beyonce. And I've heard she's very expensive. Um, and from that career, you know, she really, you know, was probably the top person in her field doing that, you know, has transitioned into making these very large scale public artworks. And, um, you know, she brings together these incredible teams of people uh, to achieve them. Um, and she'll have the initial vision and she'll sketch it all out. Um, I guess I was really fortunate to get to work with her in a more collaborative capacity than I think most people get to. Um, she gave me pretty much complete control over the generated text. I mean, she had comments about it or, you know, she would um, you have feedback, you know, as we designed it. But she wanted me to have the vision for how the voice would sound and what kind of text it would be. Uh, which was a really huge privilege and like working um, in Trafalgar Square, the, the gravity of that didn't hit me until I showed up for the install. So these um, are the lions in Trafalgar Square. Like they're... Yeah, so we were literally adding, we literally added a fifth Dayglo red lion that was the same size <laughs> wow. as the lion. And, and, and if, you, if you haven't been to Trafalgar Square, you're not from the UK or uh, haven't been to the UK, you might not know that Trafalgar Square, like it's, it's just such a potent symbol of uh, the British Empire. And their history, and it's right in front of the National Portrait Gallery, uh, where people go to see, like, you know, all the famous figures from British history. And it's this enormous column in the middle of it, uh, Nelson's column with the statue of Lord Nelson at the top. Like, I don't remember what he did, but something in Victorian England, because um, that's when it was built. Uh, and surrounded it, by it, lions. Yeah. And, 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 and so the, the sort of story I think that we told about the neural net was that, because 
you know, this was a collaboration also with Google Arts and Culture, and they were really afraid of us using any copyrighted material in the, the training. So, um, you know, what I wanted to do in that case was create a parallel between the bronze sculptures by training on poems that were written like as they were being cast at, at that era. And, you know, the just <laughs> seeing the public reaction to the thing go up was like, you know, incredible and, and more than I could have ever expected. Um, uh, when they when they unveiled it, like I remember this, like I was like wandering around. People were just kind of like swarming around the square. It's a very busy public place. And um, this like uh, I was wearing a yellow safety vest because we had these scaffolding towers that our computers were up in. And um, this like curmudgeonly old British man comes to me and goes, "What are you? Are you involved in this line franchise?" <laughs> and I go, "I go, I go, yeah, yeah, why?" And he goes, "Dreadful, ab- absolutely dreadful," and just like <laughs> because it was a dayglow lion, you know, <laughs> it was dayglow, yeah, just like it was, it was just shocking to some people. And where was um, the poetry being generated out of this dayglow lion? Yeah, so you would feed it a word at this podium. And I mean, the story was you feed it a word and it roars poetry back at you. So you, there was this podium in front of it where you could type in a word. And um, that was another challenge was making sure that people couldn't put like slurs or, you know, words that we wouldn't want projected in huge letters up Nelson's column. Because that was the other thing that was happening was it would generate a poem that would appear in the lion's mouth on a screen, uh, but also at night be projected onto the poem's body and then up Nelson's column behind it. And this was the first time anyone had done projection mapping on Nelson's column ever. Wow. Uh, and the, 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 the British government was really, gave us a really hard time about it. Um, I think they only let it happen a couple of times um, because they were so scared, actually. <laughs> what I heard was they were scared that like Google was going to put an ad up there or something. <laughs> which <laughs> right. was like, They're going to turn into a search bar, just the whole column. Yeah, exactly. But no, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Or just like, yeah. Uh, Make Google do it, whatever. Right. So do you have <laughs> um, favorite poems that were generated from this, from the lion's mouth? Oh, yeah. The whole thing is available on the website, which oh, is um, g- g.co slash please feed the lions. And, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite good. I mean, it's moving when you think about, like, the number of people and the diversity of people who contributed to it. Um, it, was, it was just really cool to see people interact with public art at that scale, um, and create something that was collaborative uh, while still representing um, a distinct vision separate and apart from the public participation. Because a lot of times work that involves participation from the public, it's very colored or tainted or, you know, just influenced by um, that participation and by the way that, you know, it just takes one person sort of hijacking an artwork, um, really, you, in most cases. And in this case, it was quite difficult for anyone to do that. And it also didn't really feel like anyone wanted to do that. Um, people were submitting words that felt like they were important to them um, or just arbitrary or um, maybe important in that moment for, for whatever reason. It didn't feel like anyone was trying to uh, exert an influence on the piece. I think people were interested in seeing what it said next. Uh, and yeah, that was just a really profound experience to watch uh, unfold. Yeah, I bet. I mean, being in the public with uh, this giant Dayglo lion and then having a, a poem roar out of its mouth is a pretty unique experience, I would say. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I feel like people are so afraid of AI these days, and yet you yes. you embrace it in almost all of the work that you're you're working with in some way. Um, what do you, What do you think, sort of going forward, is going to be the future of AI and artwork? 
or, or yeah. even AI in our society? That's a great question. Um, AI, um, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm still quite critical of AI sometimes or certain developments in AI and certain projects. I wouldn't say that I, I, I try actively to like embrace the whole of it. It may seem that way at times because I do feel that there are a lot more, the opinion of like being scared of AI is a lot more well represented than the majority of the opinions I have about it, which are, you know, that we can use it to push all these creative pursuits forward and in unexpected ways and empower people uh, to reach beyond their native capacities and produce work that sort of transcends um, their own inherent ability. I mean, like, if you think about like what a typewriter gives you as opposed to writing by hand or what, you know, digital design tools give you as opposed to like a T-square and a pencil. Um, this seems like the next iteration of, of that sort of advancement um, in terms of like, we can fundamentally change the approach to certain types of creative work because we might be able to like treat uh, designing something as like a subtractive process rather than an additive one, for example. Like there's multiple ways to make a sculpture. You can build it up layer by layer on a 3D printer or you can chip away at a block of marble until the sculpture sort of emerges from it. So I, I wish we could apply those um, those sort of inverse uh, approaches to more uh, pursuits and that's part of it. But yeah, I, I guess the future of AI, you know, where I see it going is in hopefully not like whatever direction the billionaires of the world are pushing it in. Because Elon Musk, you know, despite funding OpenAI, which contains a lot of people who I think are doing interesting and good work and making good considerations about AI, I don't have a strong opinion about what they're doing at all. Um, Elon Musk and, and moreover, like Peter Thiel, um, they just, they, they, it seems like they have very limited understandings of AI. And to me, when, when a billionaire expresses fear about AI, that's an indication, actually, that billionaires are so removed from <laughs> the public as a whole yeah. and from everyday concerns that the only thing they, they could conceivably be afraid of is artificial intel super intelligence, right? Right, and someone taking so their like, money somehow through right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so 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 I guess like we shouldn't listen to people like Peter Thiel who say AI is only good for the military. Um, which is a disgusting thing for him to say, especially because he runs Palantir and very much has the power to push AI in that direction further. Um, you know, we've basically solved the problem of killing people efficiently over and over again. There's not much headway to be made on that problem, nor do we really, I, I think we really need to be working on that problem more. You know, there are plenty of horrifying weapons in the world. Um, we don't need AI to like make weapons more destructive. Um, it, there's plenty of horrifying surveillance that's possible without AI as well. Um, and there's plenty of people talking about you know, the negative ways in which AI is being used for surveillance. So I, I guess like I see my role as talking about the more positive constructive uses or at least suggesting those positive constructive futures. Um, what I really think will happen though is, is that we're not going to get, you know, the, the walking, you know, the future isn't like walking, talking robot butlers, like serving you drinks in your apartment. Um, because to me, like that represents this idea that like, oh, well, AI just now we can have slaves, right? Like the word robot originally meant slave in Czech. 
And there's this fundamental uh, 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 connection between the history of artificially intelligent robotics and the history of like labor. And um, as I said before, I think in many cases in science fiction in which we're discussing like humanoid robots, we're actually discussing human laborers that have been treated in subhuman ways. Right. So it's, it's, it's silly for me to to think that we might actually be pursuing that kind of a future. Science fiction is not a prescription. You know, it mirrors what uh, the author, the concerns the author has in in the society they're they're living at the time. Um, It's not a prescription that we follow exactly by any means. Um, so what are some hopeful so, uses of AI? Yeah, hopeful. I think that everything around us is just going to gradually get smarter. Um, but what I hope is that we find ways to maintain um, privacy and like, uh, you know, which I think is a human right. And basically like even, you know, autonomy over our data, um, which I don't think we even have now. Maybe I hope that gets better. Um, how I hope it can get better with AI is um, if we move toward on-device compute. So to me, like one of the big problems with the infrastructure we have now for machine learning is that in order for machine learning to add anything to any product, all your data has to go up into the cloud, um, get analyzed on a remote server, and then come back. And that journey involves you basically seeding uh, autonomy over your data. in the journey, it can be intercepted. And then when it's on the remote server, you better trust the person you've given that data to. Right. So or, it's a problem uh, of ownership, basically. It's it, if it can yeah. it can be done all on your own system and you can own that system, there's a way to And there's no and, and legal it. remedies aren't the right path. I mean, I, I think that we have to think more like primitively and think about the access and like where data goes and where it shouldn't go, uh, for particular types of data. Um it's it's really about like um because fundamentally like information is a lot like heat it'll just disperse mm-hmm. <laughs> um eventually uh and we need better safeguards i think to uh protect our privacy and our anonymity um you know uh there are horrific examples of products on the market right now uh, one that i would highlight in particular that i tell everyone about is this one called sentience have you have you gone to have you heard of no, this no i haven't heard of it so it's sentience with an A at the end instead of an E, uh, sentience. Um, and their landing page contains possibly the most tone deaf uh, animation with respect to user privacy that I've ever seen in my life. Like, it's just like bewildering how tone deaf they are. You know, it, it's, it's a video made for like uh, another company who might want to use the service that they offer. Mm-hmm. But if you watch it as like a user, which everyone actually is at some level, um, it's absolutely horrifying. Uh, they basically, yeah, in every possible way. So, like, I'll just describe the beginning. It starts with, like, you know, describing, oh, you know, thousands of people use your service. Uh, but, you know, wouldn't you like to mo- know more about these anonymous data points? And then, like, the animation is, like, these little, like, stick figure, like, androgynous, like, you know, people. Right. Who, like... like you see in every uh, in online... <laughs> video post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, but then in this animation, you suddenly see them like growing breasts and becoming gendered and like becoming, it's just like horrifying. Um, and 
absolutely tone deaf in every way and it, it gets worse and worse as the video goes on too. so I you see like, you see ai's role as as increasing security and privacy in in effect oh no sorry i i think that's the concern i have i, I think that ai actually has the potential to erode those things if used irresponsibly um or, or used in a way that doesn't take into account those factors um i think that like ai has the potential to create more expressive possibilities and 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 help us understand ourselves better, um, and the work that we've been both the work that we've been making and the work that we could be making in the future, and really, um, you know, in the narrow scope of what I'm doing, relatively narrow scope of what I do, uh, I, I want to push literature forward. I, I feel like we've been spending a lot of time telling the same stories over and over again, um, and and we've been making some people very rich. Um, by like you know allowing them to tell us the same story over and over again with slight variations and i I think in the space of all possible stories that could be told there's a lot that we haven't told enough or uh haven't told at all and to me it's about like opening up new rooms in the library of Babel, so to speak Mm -hmm. um and just you know increasing the exploratory possibilities for storytelling i think it's my favorite i think it's my favorite novels are ones that like break the idea of what a novel can be right any particular formula well i can't wait to see what you do next ross um there's there's a lot of projects that we haven't been able to talk about today uh but we'll definitely direct you to ross's site online where you can check out more before we go we have sort of a tradition on uh, state of the art where we do rapid fire questions here at the end uh these are not necessarily about your work but uh just the first thing that pops into your head which i think is fitting here when we're talking about uh writing (laughs) uh spontaneous poems uh so let's start here with a, a basic one what is your favorite word a uh, synecdoche <laughs> is your favorite. Uh, why is no, it your I favorite? Not, no, no, that's one of my favorite words. My other favorite one is rictus because you can why? rictus because you, you can you can rhyme it. You, you can use it to like it, it rhymes with a lot of really common words in English. So <laughs> what's a good rhyme? Crazy. Give us a rhyme with rictus. Uh, uh, rictus flip this flick it like a light switch. I mean, there's just like it, <laughs> it rhymes with this and is and like all of the sort of connecting words you need to build a sentence and we didn't um, even get to talk about rapping that's a whole other side of this oh Uh, my god yeah that's something that yeah that's a very long digression find uh ross's instagram you can check out some of his rapping as well um if you had to write proclamations for one president besides barack obama who you wrote proclamations for uh throughout history who would it be oh my god that's such a hard question (laughs) um uh william henry harrison no no not um uh, uh 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 Probably, um, uh, oh God, what's his name? The guy in the 20, um, uh, Andrew Jackson, Jackson, because he seemed like, he seemed like he was insane, right. but actually my Polarizing favorite there. is Richard, Richard Nixon's uh, national clown week, which everyone should look up. Wait, Richard what? Nixon, what loved, is that? Richard Nixon loved clowns and made a week honoring clowns and nobody decided to do it again. Most proclamations get done every year once they're done once, unless the president who like succeeds the prior president doesn't like that thing. So like. Obama ended like National Sanctity of Life Day, which was like this anti-abortion thing, for example. Uh, Nixon did this one, like, you can look at, there's this website called the UCSB or UC Santa Barbara American Presidency Project, where you can look at every proclamation issued in history. Um, They go back to the 18th century when the first one was done by George Washington. Hmm. Uh, So like, there's a lot of really weird ones in there. There's a lot of crazy like anti-communist ones from the 50s, some of which are still done today, um, albeit have changed in a little subtle ways 
I don't know, though. Yeah, I think presidents actually at a certain point used to write their own proclamations also. And those are probably <laughs> real wacky. Uh, all right. Finally here, let's write a poem yes. together. We'll, we'll write a poem really quick. So just I just need you to fill in the blanks for me. All right. Um, I used to. Drive. But now I. Fly. I always. See. But I never. Look. I once. Went. But now I. Go. If I could. No. I would. Be spent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ross. Ross Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us. How do we find your work online? Uh, rossgoodwin.com ross goodwin on twitter ross.good.win on instagram uh and uh various websites and micro pages that you'll find buried uh in deep link trees from any of those places all right go investigate the deep link trees uh ross thanks again (laughs) uh we'll stay stay tuned for another episode next week thanks gabe Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, you can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, if you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org. Uh, we're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Wesson Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.